Welcome to the GovComs podcast, bringing you the latest insights and innovations from experts and thought leaders around the globe in government communication. Now, here is your host, David Pembroke. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of GovComs, the podcast that examines the practice of content communication in government and the public sector. Today, we welcome one of the superstars of global government communications, Sean Larkins. Sean is the Global Director of Capability at WPP's Government and Public Sector Practice, where he leads the practice's consulting and capability offer. Now, Sean was on the program way back in 2017 to discuss a research project called the Leaders Report. And this was about the future or the current state and future of government communications. And in my opinion, the most important research piece to date that has taken place that really has made government communications uh, an issue, brought a focus to it. And indeed, three to four years later, the OECD has decided to follow Sean Larkin's lead and they are now uh, examining this issue of government communications, and we're going to see the results of that research later. But I think it's very important that we understand that this conversation really started some time ago, and that leader's report is very, very important for people to have a look at. And I would encourage you that if you haven't seen it, Google it, go back and have a look at it, because there are so many insights in that leader's report that still stay true today. And we're going to talk to Sean about a few of those today. But he's based in London, works globally, And in the past 12 months, he's led projects in Europe, the Middle East and across Australasia, where he's helping governments to communicate more effectively. Uh, He also leads WPP's executive education faculty at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy at the University of Singapore and the Blavatnovic School of Government at Oxford University, where he's a frequent speaker on communications capability in government. Uh, Before joining WPP, Sean was Deputy Director of the UK Government Communication Services and the service. Now, listen, nobody uh, listening to this program regularly uh, will uh, understand that, well, you certainly will understand that I am certainly a massive fanboy of the work that the UK Government Communication Service has done through Sean's time uh, under Alex Aiken's leadership. And indeed, I would encourage another visit to the uh, GCS site, uh, gcs.gov.uk. There is more. Uh, joy that is being spread to the world of government communication in the forms of templates and other insights. So please go and have a look at the UK government communication site. But uh, Sean joins me today from London where the sun is shining, the pandemic is slowly receding. Sean, thanks very much for joining me once again on GovComs. You're very welcome, David. It's lovely to hear your voice again. So listen, um, we've just in the preamble had a little bit of a chat uh, about the pandemic and really uh, about you know life in the pandemic. But what's your take um, from sitting where you do in that sort of senior role that you have uh, at WPP as you cast your eye across the world in terms of government communications? What are the big changes that you've seen and what are the big challenges ahead? Wow, gosh, that's a that's a very very big question. I mean, I think we've got plenty of time. Brilliant, brilliant. <laughs> you know, I could talk the hind legs off a donkey, and uh, and I've not been out much in the last year. So, uh, <laughs> so prepare yourselves. I mean, 
gosh, I mean, what's happened since? What's happened since COVID? Well, firstly, thank you very much for your um, very kind introduction and your and your comments on the legal report, which we've now turned into a biennial series of um, of research and and commentary on government communication and. I think when we start to look at what has happened since the pandemic and how the, the pandemic has shaped government communications, I think we need to kind of step back a little bit to that first report and the follow-up report in, in 2019. So I'll start there, if I may. Firstly, 2017, as you said, we launched the, the leaders report. It identified a number of structural diff- difficulties within government communication and also a deficit of trust. And you and I and your audience will know if there is no trust in, in government or government communications, uh, then people don't listen to your message. People do not um, adhere to the behaviours that you need them to adhere to, to play a, a better role within society to support themselves and to support others. And I think since then, what we've seen is, is also the impact of, of increasing geopolitical disorder, uh, tensions around economic growth, the growth of tech, you know, populism, all making citizens feel a little bit more vulnerable, if you like. And I think COVID-19 has only sped up that process. So in 2019, we looked a little bit more about that trust deficit. And we did a big piece of, of uh, quantitative research with 9,000 citizens across, I think it was nine countries, from Australia to the US, from Singapore to Saudi Arabia. So people from very different backgrounds. And what we found is we found 10 drivers of, of kind of better trust and better citizen engagement with government that were germane to everybody. So it didn't matter if you were, you know, living in, in Wagga Wagga in, in Australia or living in Riyadh in, in Saudi Arabia. Um, the same things kind of held true that it was really important that government communications had a core narrative that was seen as, as contributing to the common good, to social cohesion, um, that if people were ready to engage with government, actually they needed kind of support and recognition for, for engaging with governments and so on. And, and since then, what we started to do is, is, is kind of drive that forward and look at how things have very rapidly changed since then. And then, of course, COVID struck. And I think COVID has brought government and public communication to the fore in a number of ways. I mean, first, I suppose the good news, you know, I think the the pandemic has demonstrated beyond doubt that good government communication, when based on scientific evidence and backed by audience understanding and developed through behavioural insights and delivered by an appropriate messenger, can save lives, which is fantastic. And we all knew that. Although at the moment... Um, there is not very much attribution about how successive, successive government communications have been. Yeah, I talked to colleagues around the world and people within government. You know, we ran behaviour change campaigns and pretty quickly people were washing their hands uh, and social distancing and weren't we marvellous? Well, well, quite possibly we were. But when you dig deeper, people change their behaviour for a number of different reasons, not all of them because the government was telling them to do so. So maybe we'll come on to that in a, in a few minutes' time. But we, mm. we, we've seen that good government communication you know, is absolutely essential to government. But conversely, we've seen the power of disinformation and misinformation and malinformation. And that power is so strong that where... It's really, really harmful. It has an impact on people's lives. It costs lives. It denies people access to an understanding of and belief in communication 
that can save their lives. So that's the the, the downside. Um, so we saw some positives and then we saw some negatives. We saw that need to change people's behaviour, but also to build resilience and community. And, you know, it's possibly no surprise that countries that have done particularly well during the crisis, so I'm looking at you, Australia, you know, New Zealand, Taiwan, for example, are countries that have over many years developed resilient communities because they are plagued with natural disasters like typhoons and earthquakes and forest fires. So there is something in there about the need to build resilience, which I think many governments have neglected over the time. So, so we've made some big assumptions as to, as to why people change their behaviour, which reinforces that kind of importance of data and understanding of, of citizens. And on top of that, I think because people have been very isolated, we've seen something which colleague of mine, Anne Gregory, from the University of Huddersfield here in the UK, who works very closely with the GCS, has called kind of information apartheid. You know, the degree to which we have access to communication channels and digital networks and are comfortable with receiving and sharing information really is, is creating a, a big divide. And really, that's where our latest piece of research comes in, which we're launching uh, later this month. It was starting to look at what citizens need from government communication, how governments should respond, and also practically what government communicators can do right here and right now as we struggle to move beyond the most severe stage of the pandemic into, I, I suppose, a kind of pandemic recovery period. Because as you and your listeners will be aware, you know, unless we've been living in, you know, sub-Saharan Africa and we've lived through the Ebola pandemic or we've been unfortunate enough to be affected by SARS and MERS, the vast majority of us haven't lived through a pandemic like this. There's no, there's no marker or benchmark for this in, in, in our lifetimes. So it was a unique and disturbing experience. And the challenge, I think, for governments is that, yes, of course, all the research shows that, that people just want to get life going again. And, and believe me, for someone that's been stuck in their flat for nearly 18 months, I completely concur with that conclusion. But, you know, there are always some profound effects, ongoing effects, you know, social, economic um, effects that will, that, will, that will be with us for many years to come. And I, and I just worry that in many countries there's a danger that governments will think, phew, that's over you know, let's forget about it. And actually the echoes of this pandemic will be with us for a long time and will impact on people's lives and will also impact on how they communicate with each other and with other sources of information and engage with government. And we really, really, really need to be aware of that. Otherwise, we're going to face even bigger problems in the, in the months and years to come. So if we look and, and, and bring all of that together and, under, you know, and bring ourselves through to the present day, how in your discussions and, and in your research, are government communication areas and, and the people working in government and public sector communications exhausted? And are they ready to go again? And if they aren't, what do they need to do to be able to, to get ready to continue as we move through, again, a, a period of uncertainty? We don't quite know. Yes, we perhaps think things are going to get back to normal, particularly in your part of the world, um, less so in our part of the world. But how, how do they get ready for this, this new normal that is, 
you know, so taxing because as you describe so eloquently in your introduction, there is just so much to be done. How ready and, and able are government communicators around the world for this next push? That's a very, very good question. I mean, I think my sense is that is that like their policy and political colleagues within government, they're exhausted. Um, and I think that goes for national and local government as well, you know, kind of state level government, municipal level level government. I mean, what I think we need also need to understand is that while national governments have clearly led the agenda, you know, many of the most important services, you know, be that you know, healthcare or support in education or testing have not necessarily been delivered by central government. They've been delivered by a lower tier of government. And so I think what we need to understand is that that kind of sense of exhaustion is not just in central government. It's in our, you know, it's in our city halls, it's in our shire councils, for example, it's in our it's in our municipal and city level governments as well. So firstly, I think we need to understand that. Secondly, I think, you know, there is that saying about it's really difficult to kind of fly a plane and, and build the wings at the same time. And that's what people have been going through. And I think it's really important that we try and find time to kind of stop and just to look at some of those kind of profound things that have happened during the crisis because they will impact on how we act moving forward. And that is really difficult to do when you're, when you're tired and when you're busy and when the situation is, is changing around you on a day-to-day basis. But what we do know is that, is that, you know, there are some things that tend to always happen and have happened throughout history following a pandemic, you know, there is a, a an increase in kind of conformist behaviour, kind of small C conservative behaviour. There is that kind of almost um, kind of swing to the, if I can talk about it in political terms, to the to the right as people start to reflect on on their own kind of behaviours. There's also an increase in things like kind of relationship breakdown and, and divorce. But we need to understand what's kind of been going through people's heads. You know, societies are continue, continuing to fracture. Let's not kid ourselves that that sense of we're all in this together, fighting a common enemy that was evoked during the, the early stages of, of the, the pandemic is going to continue. You know, that unity of purpose has failed to, to reverse the polarisation of societies in many parts of the world. Yes, the pandemic led to a revived sense of national identity. You know, that national flag was a bit of a security blanket. But... Um, you know, it only boosted morale amongst some audiences, you know, it exacerbated feelings of exclusion in others. We've also seen kind of behaviours in a, in, a, in a state of flux. Those of you that are um, involved in kind of behaviour change will know that and recognise that governments shifted citizens quickly from kind of system one, unconscious behaviours to system two. You know, we all needed to think about how often and when we washed our hands and if we had a face mask on. But we actually now need to shift some of those behaviours back again so they become kind of permanent habit. Um, We know that citizens are getting kind of tired of the constraints placed on their lives. That's increasing tensions between citizens and and government. We've witnessed an increase in kind of moral inertia. You know, this problem is just too busy for me to kind of get involved with. We've seen an increase in motivated reasoning um, where, you know, well, I never voted for this government, so of course I'm going to disbelieve everything they do. Uh, we've seen an increase in, in confirmation bias, in optimism bias. You know, it will never affect me. So there are some real behavioural trends that we need to be aware of as well because that impacts on how people behave moving forward. And I think you and I before have talked about the fact that, you know, the vast majority of, of issues that governments communicate about are, are about changing behaviour or maintaining behaviour in some way. And so we need mm. to be very aware 
that there are many, many behaviors that are in a state of flux and we don't know which ones will, will change permanently and which ones will, um, will, will, will just be something new that we need to deal with. And so that, that kind of change around things like social norms, for example, and how accepting we are of punishments for people that we deem as deviant. You know, well, they had more than six people in their apartment when it was banned. You know, all of those kind of things are going to, are going to impact not just on us within our communities, but also the legitimacy of how we see government's intervention in our lives. And so, again, this, this complex, ever-changing, evolving, fast-moving context, and we all know as communicators just how important the understanding of that context is if indeed we're going to deliver that successful behaviour change. But I mean, I'm intrigued by your role as head of capability there at WPP and thinking about government communication and thinking about capability. What's your view on capability and what government communications teams need to build to be effective in this complex context? Well, firstly, I think we need to realise that, you know, throughout this pandemic, no one got it spot on. You know, there isn't a single country where we can say, great, you know, X country did brilliantly. Um, No one gets it spot on. But, you know, there are countries, as I've said, like Australia, New Zealand and Taiwan, you know, have done it well. They're used to building Resilient. Although you, you, I, I, there are some advantages being an island at the bottom of the world where you can close the borders. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, <laughs> but you, need to, you need to build legitimacy for that. You need to build legitimacy. I mean, we're we're a much smaller island than you are, and of course, we're much closer connected to to Europe and and the state. So, yes, there's a benefit of being an island, but that doesn't protect you on its own, and it also doesn't give you that ongoing legitimacy that you need for people to con- kind of continue True. to support that. So I think there are, th- I think there are three things. I mean, you, you talked about capability. Um, you know, obviously some things have changed. There's been a, a massive shift to digital channels, for example, that was, that had happened anyway, but has kind of, kind of sped up. I think, you know, social media messaging and video services saw massive increases in, in kind of growth and, and, and usage. Also a really massive increase in things like user-generated content. I mean, who didn't go on TikTok and film themselves miming Ariana Grande at least once during the pandemic? Well, maybe I didn't. But, but, but we see <laughs> people going to different sources of information. Yes, television played its you know, really, really important role of showing that it can get mass reach and actually it can talk in an emotive way and, and, and build trust so great increase in in television viewing but also increasing not just user generated content um, but things like kind of streaming services you know using platforms where people can filter out or fast forward through all of those kind of adverts and and campaigns and messages that we so beautifully kind of craft and create so there so there are there's also some new kind of dependencies on government emerging which i think is also really important for us to kind of get to grips with you know, particularly in kind of Western democracies, over the last 30, 40 years, government has got smaller and smaller. Citizens need to stand on their own two feet. But suddenly there's an economic crisis and we'll save your job and we'll put you on furlough and we'll have, you know, job, job seeker and job keeper, keeper schemes. And, you know, people quite rightly will say, well, if you can intervene and help me economically now, why can't you when there's a crisis in the future? So people will be more demanding. So I think the three things that need to happen, I think one is... Um, we need to kind of understand, I think, what kind of communication citizens need from government at the moment. And I think what they, 
they need is they need information uh, that makes sense of their situation. You know, this has been a, a unique period for, for many, many people. So we need to help citizens make sense of, um, of their situation. So they need facts and a sense of security. They need facts. That's difficult when we're, we're probably less trusting of facts than we have in the past. We need to provide emotional and technical support. You know, it's a horrible term, new normal. We don't yet know what that will look like, but we know that there will be difficulties on, on the way. So we also need to offer reassurance. Um, while there's been, you know, clear winners and losers during the crisis, there's been no, you know, no, no VE day, no Anzac day to make us feel as if, great, we, we, we've got a victory here. But also, I think, importantly, after more than a year of being treated like kids, everybody wants to kind of reassert their independence and be treated like adults again. And we also need to communicate with them in a way that protects citizens from new challenges and dangers, you know, on and offline behaviours have changed. For their own safety, citizens need communication that helps them address key vulnerabilities, you know, builds their media literacy, their understanding of things like cybersecurity, we're doing more online now, support for civic responsibility. And so that means there are certain skills and, and things that that we, I think, need to, to kind of pick up as, as communicators. And, you know, if we look at that in a, in a bit more detail then, you know, we need to look at how we how we build trust with citizens. And that's not easy. But, you know, we will need to be a bit more kind of honest about, I think, some of the challenges we face. We need to talk about victories in maybe a, a slightly more kind of humble way. But humility within government is never easy. But, you know, everybody is aware that this has been difficult and no one expects government to get this completely right. We, there are some things that I think structurally need to do. We need to better integrate strategy and campaign planning. Um, you know, we have seen real successes when governments have stuck to a very clear message hierarchy and um, and really have integrated their communications. We've seen big challenges where that hasn't happened. Uh, it's unfair to kind of pull out one country over another, but I'll just give you an example from where we are in the UK. Obviously, at the beginning of the crisis, um, the number of people going onto public transport collapsed. The government was saying, don't use public transport, you know, find other ways of, of, of getting into the office or across town if you need to go. At the same time as the city authorities here in London realised that there was a collapse in fair income, so increased the price of the congestion charge to driving a car. So, OK, you can't go on public transport, but you're going to make it more difficult and expensive for me to drive across town. You know, how does that square you know, those yeah. policies are in opposition to each other. So we need to develop a much a, a much stronger citizen focus rather than a, what we've talked about before, you know, a policy focus. We need to see things always from the citizen's perspective. And that means that we can join up and we can talk about things from, from the direction of how it impacts on citizens' life. Obviously, we need to build faster crisis response mechanisms. But with so much misinformation and disinformation and malinformation, you know, we need to start thinking about how we better develop our own channels, you know, whether that is, you know, a prime ministerial briefing on screen once a, a week or whatever it is, but, but or whether it's more direct to kind of citizen communications. You know, most people, most countries have developed their kind of test and trace apps. You know, we now have ways of getting very simple messages direct into people's phones. So we need to start thinking about that channel management and we need to develop smarter media strategies you know we are about to come into a world of things like cookieless google you know all of those things that we've started to rely on through advertising technology about tracing people and their movements through cookies 
that's going to end soon. So, so what are the kind of media strategies that we're going to use to, to make sure we continue to connect with people at the moments that matter? And if we're connecting with people at the moments that matter, then we need to be much better at tracking and monitoring public sentiment. And we've, I think, in many parts of the world, only seen lip service towards kind of really listening and properly engaging with, with citizens. So that has to change as well. Mm. So it's interesting, isn't it? The the UK government research that uh, Australian academic Jim McNamara did a couple of years ago obviously spoke to the importance of listening. And I actually read with interest the uh, government communication service report in the UK where they uh, undertook that independent research where, and you may in fact have been involved in it, where you came in, the team came in and had a bit of a look and, and about what happened, what worked, what didn't work. But one of the lines that intrigued me was really about this sense of government needs to, and government communication services need to act more like a newsroom, to be more responsive, to be able to create content faster, to be able to respond, to listen. What was your, What's your views on that in terms of building that muscle, that capability, so government are able to use their own channels more effectively, uh, use social media channels more effectively to be able to create and distribute that useful, relevant content consistently in order to meet the demands of citizens and stakeholders. Yeah, I absolutely agree with Jim. Jim is a great man. I'm very, I'm a big fan of, of Jim and his and his research, and he's absolutely on the money there. I mean, what we, you know, what we we do know is that is that you know both the private sector and also you know whether you want to call them kind of bot factories or conspiracy groups or whatever, you know, we know that they are very very agile online, and we need to we need to kind of keep up with that speed. I mean, I think. Um, Taiwan has a, a digital minister, minister called Audrey Tang, who's a very, very great uh, politician uh, and leader. And she talks about building kind of nerd immunity. You know, how we, we, how we behave online is, is really important. And I think what we've learned from the, the crisis the, is the importance of, of deep collaboration, you know, across nations, across sectors, across communities, um, I think some governments lost the plot when they kind of thought that they needed to take charge and infantilize everybody, you know, and kind of marginalize community knowledge. There is a lot of that knowledge is is out there. So we need to be as kind of as creative and, and as clever as the private sector and, and those that spread you know, kind of disinformation. And I think we've seen some of that, you know, they talk about kind of invention being the mother of necessity, you know, some of the strongest communication during COVID, you know, came from, came from places like, you know, Afghanistan and Vietnam and Cambodia that have to think on their feet because they don't necessarily have, you know, the communications infrastructure or the, the budgets or the, the, the time to build kind of traditional um, communication or advertising campaigns. So I'm absolutely with um, with Jim is that we need to kind of build some muscle in that in that in that newsroom kind of sense within within government. You know, we need to build, you know, that kind of responsiveness that Taiwan have. You know, if Ta- if the government in Taiwan sees misinformation, then you know their standard is they get a response out within twenty minutes. But that speed and that robustness of response, yeah, absolutely is is key to supporting and protecting people as we move forward. I mean, we've seen some interesting work from the EU for example, and their work with member states on how you kind of combat conspiracy theories and, and looking at who is most receptive or, or susceptible to believing conspiracy theories and looking at how that information spreads online. And there's some really interesting evidence from um, certainly from, from kind of public health about the impact that, that 
that kind of misinformation has on combating the pandemic. So there's some interesting work done by kind of social scientists and virologists that that when they're looking at how likely a new variant of COVID is to spread, how likely that is to spread, um, actually, if it's if it's if it's if it's paired with conspiracy theories or misinformation, they're looking at well, what impact does that have on us? Us slowing down the spread of disease. So the spread of disease and the spread of misinformation are becoming increasingly intertwined, which I think is a fascinating area of future study. But is something those of us that are working in or with governments need to be aware of. You know, the, the impact of that is potentially that big. Now, listen, before I let you get on with your very busy day, just a a final question about the research that uh, is coming, the the next piece of the the research through, um, you know, back from, started back in 2017 and and you alluded to it's it's coming through. What are the the top line uh, insights that you can share with us ahead of its release? And when will it be released? So it's released. It's released later this month. It's, re- it's released in, in June. And you know, you did a, a very generous uh, introduction to this session. You can Google WPP Leaders Report and you can download it free of charge. It's there with the, the other two ser- the other two reports in this series. So, so we've turned this into kind of. It's such a massive area of study, but it's not studied. I think we and you're right. We and OECD are probably about the only people that are looking at this in a consistent basis. And it is so Correct. impactful and so fundamental to the effectiveness of, of government. So you can you can Google WPP leaders report and you can download it for your charge. All three all three editions of it will be there and they kind of build one another. You know, it, there's a problems with trust. So we need to build better engagement. We've struggled with engagement and then we've had COVID. So what are we learning from that? And really what we've done is we've kind of broken the research down into kind of three main areas. One is what were the big challenges that we were facing you know, way back in another world at the end of 2019, what are the kind of trends and issues we've seen come up since the, the, the pandemic? What are those What are those kind of trends and changing of behaviours and changing of media patterns that we've seen? And then the conclusions are based really around three simple premises. What, what do citizens need from government communication? How should governments respond? So what are the kind of big structural things that we should be looking at if we are in a position of authority? You know, if I'm running a government communication service like Mr. Aitken in the UK, uh, if I'm leading a team, what are the kind of things that we can do to respond to that? But also, practically, as a government communicator, you know, what can I do now? What are the kind of questions that I should be talking to my kind of political colleagues and also importantly, my policy colleagues about, you know, so things like how do we control the narrative and channels across government? How do we work across sectors and government agencies? Where are the areas of consensus between how the public is feeling and what government needs to do? So we identify, I think it's kind of nine key areas of of, of probably greater um, kind of medium-term focus, and they are structural, but also about eight questions that we should be asking now. And I suppose finally I would say not just beating the drum for WPP, but beating the drum for every agency that works with government communicators across Australia and, and, and wider is really, you know, you should demand more of them in, ter- in terms of kind of helping create a learning culture. You know, it is in their best interests that they work with, um, the most talented and educated and up-to-date clients yeah, and procurers. And so you should be really going to your 
kind of comms agencies and your media agencies and your creative agencies and saying, great, what have you learned? How are you transferring some of that skills to me and my team? I mean, again, I've always found that quite surprising that, that people aren't really more demanding of their agencies. You know, I can tell you from WP's perspective, just demand away. You know, we see that as in as as, you know, we wanted to get we want to get the best quality of work done and you get the best quality of work done when the people you work with are as demanding and as clear focused as possible so please look to the private sector create your own communities of interest create your own learning culture we talked about the gcs earlier um, in terms of the uk you know continuing professional development internships apprenticeships talent programs if you are leading a government communications function anywhere in the world and you haven't got that outlook then you are doing your colleagues and your employers a disservice so you know ending with rupaul is an odd thing to think another thing I do that, but you know reading is fundamental learning is fundamental we've been through a massive period of change um you know there is much we can learn from each other i know it's difficult to get that timing but it has to be a central focus of how we move forward so that we continue to support and protect our citizens as we come through, you know, into the kind of pandemic recovery period, uh, recovery period, because it's, it, you know, pa- the pandemic has not been a blip. It will echo, its implications uh, and impact will echo for many years to come. You know, we need to be cognizant of that and we need to get ahead of the curve. Wise words indeed. Ladies and gentlemen, consider yourself advised. There you go. One of the top people in global government communications has just given you some pretty clear advice is to make sure you find the room to help people to develop their skills. Because as we go through that interview there with Sean, you can see you know, this massively complex context, fast, changing, you know, trying to manage all of these different moving parts, trying to build relationships with policies and programs areas, trying to understand, trying to build that citizen focus. You know, there's so much responsibility for government communicators in the work that you do. Um, you really are going to have to help your teams. And 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 I totally agree with Sean that, you know, take, in, insist that capability be built. If you are paying an agency, insist that they that they transfer uh, their knowledge, their skills, their behaviour, their attitude to help you uh, to be more effective in connecting with citizens and stakeholders. Sean, uh, stakeholders. Sean Larkins, thank you so much for being so generous with your time with us once again today. And thanks to you, the audience. Thank you for coming back once again. Uh, another great conversation. I love speaking to Sean Larkins. He really uh, does know what he's talking about and has a very big influence uh, around government communications. And I would commend to you uh, the research that has been done by WPP now over many years and that new research that's coming out. Certainly, there'll be some great wisdom and great advice there for you uh, to incorporate in your daily work. So again, thanks for coming back. Uh, once again uh, and we will be back at the same time in a couple of weeks but for the moment it's bye for now you've been listening to the govcoms podcast if you enjoyed this episode be sure to rate and subscribe to stay up to date with our latest episodes 